Hello, and thank you again for listening to my podcast. Again, in March, I'm re-releasing some episodes that you may not have heard or you might want to listen to again or share with a friend. My most popular podcast to date, by far, is the one I did with my husband last spring about the history of pandemics. It's an interesting overview look at humans interacting with disease for thousands of years. I do have him pinned down to do another podcast pretty soon. I've gotten a lot of requests for that. So when I can pin him down and we can do some recording, that'll be coming up soon. Hope you're all doing well and thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Annette and thanks for listening to the special episodes I'm creating related to the coronavirus outbreak and the COVID-19 pandemic. I'll release these as soon as I can get them done so that they will appear more often than just my regular weekly podcasts. So keep your eyes open for additional information. I will include them in my regular list of episodes, in addition to my regular weekly Sunday release, so that you can have the information sooner rather than later. But you can always go back and learn from it, as I think many of the things we discuss will be very relevant. So I hope you learn from these. Sorry we're having to do these, but as long as we're dealing with this, let's work together to learn from each other and create more content that is informative as well as some of the others that may be a little more entertaining. Thanks, and here's some good information for you, I hope. I never even ask you, what does an infectious disease doctor do for our listeners? We see patients, um, of course, we're the most interesting medical specialty that there is, at least I think so. We see people who, in this world of modern surgery and artificial joints, a certain percentage, 1%, get infected, and it's complicated to deal with, and um, we're the guys who sort of step in when when your mom's total knee joint gets infected because it takes surgery and it takes medicine, it takes antibiotics, and it's especially all in itself. But we also, you know, we take care of HIV-infected people. They're, all those people need treatment, they need drugs, and they need to be followed and tested, and, and that's a, a fair bit of what we do. Hello, I'm Annette, and thanks for listening to my podcast. This is a special episode uh, related to the current coronavirus pandemic, but it's really more a look back at pandemics. I thought, uh, since this is a net on education, it might be good to educate the listeners about both infectious diseases, viruses, pandemics, and the history of all that, because I bet a lot of people don't really understand that. And I think that has played a large role in the history of mankind. And I couldn't think of anyone better to interview uh, than the captive audience I have right now, who is my husband. I'm married to Dr. Taylor Carlisle, who is an infectious disease doctor. Thanks for being on the show, sweetie. You bet. So tell us a little bit about your educational background, if you would. I um, went to medical school at Baylor College of Medicine, uh, and I uh, got my medical degree in 82, went to Tulane, and I got my infectious disease training there after completing internal medicine residency. And then I've been practicing here in Amarillo since 1988 without interruption. And you're, you were interested in infectious disease. Why? 
I took a course in parasitology when I was at college in Texas Tech and became absolutely fascinated by the whole idea of um, of parasites and animals living in your body. And I'd been a zoology major. In fact, I graduated with a degree in zoology, and I felt like um, infectious disease was a way to practice zoology and uh, medicine. <laughs> so I ended up here. And the program that you studied under at Tulane University Medical Center. Talk a little bit about that. We had actually newly set up a infectious disease subsection of internal medicine, and my chief, Dr. Hyslop, had moved down from Harvard, and we um, I was actually one of his first two fellows, followed by many more. And I did a three-year fellowship there, including a year of research on uh, monkey malaria at the Delta Primate Center. Also a lot of clinical medicine and infectious disease at uh, Charity Hospital in New Orleans. By the way, that was, uh, well, the AIDS epidemic, and you could call that a pandemic, was raging. So I've gotten to see that one from uh, start to now. So let's look back a little bit at the history of pandemics. Tell us what a pandemic, what the word pandemic means. Basically, it means an outbreak of an infectious process that traverses the world or the known world. So it's not confined to one geographic location. Of course, nobody knows when the first pandemics were. They probably started after the onset of agriculture, which is 7,000 years ago, because um, many of the common diseases that we deal with now are felt to have been acquired after humans quit roving around in hunting bands and sat down in one spot in places like Mesopotamia where the Sumerians had agriculture and they also raised animals. So we had pigs and cows and later on turkeys and chicken and sheep and things like that. So many of these diseases likely came from close contact to those farm animals. And in an enclosed setting with people living in cities, it spread rapidly through. So who knows when the first, what we call pandemic happened. Maybe it started in the Middle East, spread all the way to Egypt, uh, which at the time that might have been considered a a pandemic, but that was probably how measles started, smallpox, diphtheria, typhus, a lot of other uh, things that are either not seen or commonplace now, or in the case of smallpox, eliminated completely, uh, probably derived from those uh, sort of early historic or even prehistoric uh, uh, moments. If you want to look at recorded history, the plague of Athens was in like 424 BC, I think. And this one happened to have been well described by Thucydides and his uh, his uh, descriptions of the Peloponnesian War. But they clearly describe a plague that uh, many experts have argued about for many years. They've even had symposia on what was the plague of Athens. It was a rash. It was a febrile illness. I mean, but a lot of the the symptoms and signs were similar enough to other things that you can actually legitimately argue about what it was. But we do know that Athens closed itself to not let the Spartans in. And in this enclosed place, some disease got a hold and killed you know, a huge percentage of the population, probably dooming Athens to eventually, much later on, lose the Peloponnesian Wars. But it even killed the great uh, statesman Pericles. And so, and we all have that on record from Thucydides, thankfully. Well, you might include that as one of the early plagues. The 
uh, in 540s, the plague of Justinian, uh, which is the heart of the Eastern Roman Empire, uh, and Justinian was one of its uh, most famous emperors. With their Byzantine Empire at its absolute uh, zenith, it it had come over probably from Egypt or uh, other other places in Mesopotamia and the, and the Middle East, and it uh, swept through much of Constantinople and killed numerous people. This is also fairly well documented. And what was this again? This was in Constantinople. And what was the disease? Actual bubonic plague. Oh, it's well okay. described because they got febrile and they had buboes that are well described, which is uniquely associated with the plague, which is caused by Yersinia pestis and transmitted by rat flea. And you recall around that time there were probably exchanges with the Far East and the and the steppes of Asia through the Silk Road and places like that that brought the rats to the West. And this... Uh, the, the, of course, the rats carried the fleas, the fleas carried the bacillus, and when the fleas uh, fed on people, they got these giant buboes, which are big swollen areas under their arms that drained uh, purulent fluid and had a high mortality rate, 30 or 40 percent, so killed huge numbers of people. It kind of burned itself out in stages over the next couple hundred years, but it did change the course of history. The uh, Many people think the Byzantine Empire really was in a tailspin after that. And of course, the onset of Islam about a hundred years after that basically established a new power in the Middle East and the Byzantines were going down while the uh, Islamic state was uh, was actually on the on the up. So the, people think that that, uh, that altered uh, history in many ways. And then, of course, the Great Plague, which is uh, in the 1340s in the 14th century, was uh, probably spread by ships, regional ships carrying the, the, the rats and the fleas uh, to places like uh, Venice and other ports. And then it spread rapidly through Europe and killed reportedly a third of the population. It's actually where the uh, war, the practice of quarantine originated. And the place was, uh, Venice was innovative. They required that any ship coming into port had to stay off on an island well away from the shores of Venice for 40 days, which it wasn't anything epidemiologic about that. It was the, made up from the Bible from 40 days in the wilderness and 40 days of rain on Noah and 40 days in uh, isolation for certain kind of conditions. Uh, well described in uh, early books of the Bible. So they decided uh, a, quarter, a quarantine, which is 40 days, would remain. And that happened to be something that worked out really well because if a plague was on a ship killing the sailors uh, in 40 days, it would have killed everybody it was going to kill. And so it actually uh, effectively worked, not because of the reasons they thought, which is that they were keeping the vapors offshore, but because of uh, obviously the, the rats and the fleas and the sick sailors were never making it to shore. So that's where the word quarantine actually comes from. But that was the Great Plague um, that killed a third of Europe. Let me ask a question about the plague. Now, the the fleas are on the rats, yes. and the rats carry those fleas from place to place. But the disease doesn't actually impact the rat, does it? Yes, it can. They it can, can have, kill the rat. Yeah, it can kill. They can cause a big die off in the rats. Okay, and it's a specific rat, the ratus ratus. That's the black rat or the roof rat, the rat that. Uh, 
runs up and down on high surfaces and it actually uh, is uniquely adapted to go to sea. Of course, it's adapted to go anywhere where humans go. And the larger, heavier Norway rat, Rattus norvegica, is also associated. The black rat is the one primarily associated with bubonic plague. And as I say, the rats can die. In fact, that's when the fleas, who are opportunists, if they can't find any more rats to jump on, they go find any other thing that's around, including humans. And what happens is that the bacillus plugs up the flea. It's called the oriental rat flea. And it causes it to uh, to, to choke. And then as it feeds on the blood, it has to vomit back out. And so that way it contaminates the wound. And then the bacillus gets into the bloodstream, which gets into the lymphatics, which uh, let's just say it bit you on the arm. It would go up underneath your underarm and form a great big tennis ball size swelling in your right arm called a bubo. And they would later turn black and drain and then go when they caused what we call septicemic plague, which means the bacterium gets into your blood, usually rapidly fatal after that, often after just a few hours. One of the few diseases that you can get in the morning and die at night, um, that would be septicemic plague. And when it became really contagious, it was in what called pneumonic plague, which means it got into the lungs and you could cough it out. Those are all technical aspects of plague. It was a big killer, uh, no question about that. And it went in waves for several hundred years after that, uh, after which the last epidemic i think was in the 1700s and we really haven't had an import uh, a really important plague pandemic since that time we do have however what we call epizootics which the plague bacillus has been established in western rodents of the western united states and these are all native rats right and prairie dogs and things like that so occasionally we'll get outbreaks in places like rural uh, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, uh, a lot of times in Native American populations that live closer to to native rodents. And that's still caused by the same bacillus. Same or exact bac- bug. Same bacterium. Same bacterium. It's the, the oriental rat flea. It just has to, it had uh, adapted to the, uh, the Native American rodents. And if you can catch them early, then it's a treatable disease now. Still, if it goes on long enough and it kills an extremity or something by what we call DIC or septic shock, uh, you can still lose a limb to things like septicemic plague. And back in the 1300s, they didn't understand the biology of any of no, this. So what did they do? Galen's hypothesis, which was that all diseases were caused by a an imbalance of the four humors, which are black bile, yellow bile, blood and phlegm and so if it was an unbalanced you could like draw off some blood and when they you heard the term put on put put some leeches on him well they actually was a treatment or they would just simply draw blood or they would give what we call a purge or a vomit or a cathartic in other words they that's all they could do and so when plague happened they thought it was either a religious punishment which that was a lot of the basis of medieval medical thinking or in the case of of Central Europe, many people immediately thought that the Jews were poisoning the water well. So they started killing Jews until the Pope actually, I think it was Pope Clement, said, wait a minute, the Jews are dying too. It 
can't be then they wouldn't kill themselves but nobody listened so <laughs> it was um so that actually a lot of uh, the jewish population of uh, western and central europe uh, migrated east to russia and poland and ukraine so it's not only had something to do with the population density or or decline of numbers but it also has created some shifting demographics in in mobility in certain populations. Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely. That's one I just mentioned uh, that uh, moved the Jews farther to the east. Of course, they never quite uh, could uh, escape their oppression. But uh, the other thing is that many people think it killed the feudal system. If you had knights and castles and they owned all the humans on the property, well, it killed knights and serfs and peasants, and it sort of uh, ushered in an era where everybody had more work because only a third, I mean, only two-thirds of the population were left after that. So it uh, actually probably pushed more mercantile businesses, and, you know, you no longer worked for the night, and uh, but you actually could develop your own work yourself or be a small-time farmer. So it probably radically changed the way people live in the medieval era. What are some other pandemics or... You'd have to look at the Columbian Exchange. And by Columbian Exchange, by mean Col- When Columbus, to the uh, everybody knows he sailed the ocean blue in 1492. The Columbian Exchange is what Columbus and his fellow Europeans brought to the New World and what they took back. In fact, uh, you know, one can't imagine Italian food without tomatoes, but there were no tomatoes ever in Europe until after the Columbian Exchange, as we call it. And there were no um, no chili peppers. Imagine Asian food without chili peppers, but uh, they didn't have it. Corn, potatoes, all these things that we think about as having existed since time immemorial were brought over by the successive waves of Spaniards, Portuguese, other Europeans, and they one of the things they brought and contributed to the Americas was European diseases. So when smallpox hit Hispaniola, where Columbus had first landed, that uh, depopulated whatever remained of the Native American population. And then, of course, it traveled to Mexico and killed off so many of the Aztecs that Cortes was able to conquer it uh, fairly easily. And similarly to the Inca Empire, um, where Pizarro was reached an empire that had already been affected by this European disease, smallpox, it can have a mortality rate of as high as 90 percent in the very young. So not many people realize that disease played a huge role in the conquest of the Americas. Those not in the know, I think you're right. They, In fact, I think we're taught the heroic aspects of European conquest when, when I was in school, at least. You yes. know, the Cortez came over with his plucky band of Spaniards and uh, beat the mighty Mexican Empire. But what we're not told is that it had been reeling from disease and from disease that they didn't understand. Why were the... Spaniards not affected, okay? That had to do with innate immunity that they developed over thousands of years. And similarly with measles. Measles wiped out probably much of the North American Indian population as well, and certainly Pacific Islanders when they began exploring uh, the Pacific. Tuberculosis was a bad one. Unfortunately, the Native Americans didn't give to give much in the way of disease back to the Europeans, but they did contribute one, and that was called syphilis. They sent uh, that 
that disease back to Europe where it actually raged in the 1500s uh, and uh, was quite a bad disease back then, uh, much worse than it is now, although it's still an important disease. What other infectious diseases and pandemics have played a role in the history of the world? Well, as I said, much of this has not been recorded because if you look at population studies, and a great book by William McNeil is written called Plagues and Peoples about how much of world history has really been shaped by by plagues and pandemics that are unrecorded, uh, uh, certainly in much of, of the world before history was being written down by scribes. But we're talking about in modern recorded history, I think that the, the last really great pandemic, until one I'll get to in a second, was the Columbian Exchange pandemics that really radically affected Pacific Islanders, uh, North and South Americans, the native North and South Americans, um, and also parts of Asia and China. This was uh, unprecedented, and the uh, it set the stage for our modern high-travel era. And you'd have to say the last great pandemic was, of course, the 1918-1919 influenza epidemic, the one that's most referenced to nowadays. And it was a bad, it was a bad killer. I mean, people think it killed between 50 and maybe even 80 or million or more around the world. Nobody really knows for absolute sure, but it was a bad killer. It tended to kill young, healthy adults probably in a fashion somewhat similar to this current viral epidemic. But uh, it went away within a year or two and was gone. The virus probably, uh, it, it mutated to a less pathogenic form. And although influenza remains a pandemic disease just about every year nowadays, uh, it is not nearly as lethal as that particular epidemic was. Um, nobody knows exactly for sure why, but we think that novel viruses tend to be more lethal in the beginning, and then they tend to become less lethal as time goes on for a variety of evolutionary and immunologic reasons. Let's talk about what novel of novel virus means and then jump back to why they're not as... Well, um, um, it, it's a good question. Uh, for example, um, we have novel vir- influenza viruses um you might even say if you're a purist every year because the virus is an RNA virus that recombines uh, among birds and waterfowl on a practically an annual basis. And at any given flu season in the winter, there's three or four or more strains running around, uh, several of which have been recombined and uh, represent what we call a novel virus. There are two antigens on the surface of the influenza virus uh, that we tend to use in shorthand. Um, One is hematoxylin and one is neuraminidase. And you hear the word H1N1. Let's go back oh, to the okay. original. It's because it's the first hematoxylin and neuraminidase virus, and that's how we identify it. Now, periodically, those change too. Uh, they mutate. They form new forms. And so the next one might be H1N2. You have a second neuraminidase that's different enough from the first one that you call it a different type. And so on, and H3N2, H, you know, the it goes on. And every time that happens, we call that an antigenic shift, and you've got a novel virus, and that's always felt to be possibly more lethal. Does novel mean new or an, well, novel one that comes new. from an animal? 
It means outside new. It depends humans. on if you're a lumper or a splitter, as we say. Okay. You might say that it's the same virus, but in a slightly altered form. And in, in influenza, you know, the great influenza of 1918, but also there was a pandemic, uh, antigenic shift in uh, 1957, another one in 1967, one in 1977, which everybody remembers the swine flu, at least old people like me, where they, Dr. I mean, uh, President Gerald Ford wanted to vaccinate the whole country because it was going to be this bad swine flu epidemic. It never materialized. But we got our shots. But I we remember. all got our shots. Yeah. Maybe that's why. And then in recent years, you've heard of the bird flu, which makes me laugh because all influenza is bird flu. But though no matter, they had a novel. I think it was H five N one, but it was uh, it was uh, the one that, that was kind of lethal around Hong Kong a few years back, and and they were worried about it becoming a a bad lethal pandemic. But it never never really happened. It's hard to predict these things. So let's go back to the 1918 pandemic, uh, flu influenza pandemic. And my dad would have lived through that, probably had it. And probably survived, got it. Because uh, he was a young man. Yeah, they call it the Spanish world. flu, but it's really unfair to Spain because they, they happen to be the only ones reporting data during the war. <laughs> and so it had nothing to do with Spain. In fact, it might have even started in the United States. Like it's, I think someplace like Kansas. In Kansas in, is what I was In reading. central U.S., but, and, but that was the first time that really large groups of people moved around the globe. Probably so. It was the Great War, and uh, mostly it was Europe, but it actually it, it spread worldwide, and you did have shipping that went worldwide. We didn't really have international airplane travel like we do now, but there's no question that it was a worldwide pandemic, and it's been well documented, and it reached just about every point, corner of the globe. One of the re- ways that they reconstituted the virus was by digging in the permafrost up in Canada and Alaska and uncovering some bodies that died uh, back in 1918 and actually being able to reassemble the virus from uh, these uh, frozen dead. Okay, so tell the listeners the difference between a virus and a bacterium. Well, a virus, uh, many people argue whether it's alive or not. A bacterium is a living organism. It has a cell wall. It has its own uh, RNA or, or DNA, rather. And it clearly can replicate itself, and it can live both in human bodies or it can live, uh, they can be free-living. Bacteria are a, uh, uh, a large portion of the life forms on Earth. And we have a lot of them in our body that are healthy, uh, You right? probably have trillions of them on your own body, on the skin, in your mouth, in your nether regions. They're everywhere. In your gut. And in your, oh, in your gut. They're, your gut is uh, full of uh, bacteria. There's enough bacteria under one tooth to kill you many times over. They're, 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 a lot of them are lethal. That was the reason we evolved this complicated immune system to keep our own body's bacteria from uh, attacking and killing us. And they actually, they do a lot of good. Uh, our gut bacteria, we're just now exploring scientifically how they affect human health and disease. And the uh, that that's going to be a wide open field in the future. Many people that think that they reflect obesity or other like cardiovascular health. Uh, and of course, 
the what you eat uh, turns into what lives in your gut. And we know that there's a wide variety of different uh, gut organisms that occur in, uh, like, let's say, what we call natural people or people who are living uh, 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 far from civilization and people who are consuming a Western processed diet who we have much fewer in the way of bacteria. And is there a connection between that and various human chronic diseases? Almost certainly so, although we don't really know yet. That's probably for another podcast. (laughs) So let's go back to pandemics. Okay. And a pandemic that really a lot of people didn't realize was a pandemic that kind of came about about the time you were in late medical school training, early uh, uh, post postdoc training. Oh, HIV. HIV. I've watched that one myself. I remember reading the original case report. <laughs> that was in 1981, the New England Journal of Medicine, also MMWR. But uh, it was uh, a case. A monthly of, morbidity and mortality. Mor- yeah, morbidity, mortality, <laughs> monthly report. That's what we <laughs> ID guys read as our, <laughs> as our fun reading. The original case, of course, came from, I think, a dermatologist in L.A., Los Angeles, and he had reported series of gay men with uh, pneumocystis, uh, carinia pneumonia which was considered a rare fungal pneumonia at the time, actually protozoal, but it's now known to be a fungus. And uh, simultaneously with a doctor in New York who reported almost a similar kind of outbreak there, and so it didn't take long to put two and two together and say, what what in the heck are we dealing with? And it was um, disease mostly of young gay men uh, initially, but at the same time they were describing it in Haitians. People from Haiti, and for a lot of complicated reasons, it it looked like it might have um, come into the United States through through Haiti. Uh, one of the famous theories back in the eighties, a book written by An- Randy Schiltz called "And the Band Played On," was that a French uh, Canadian airline steward. Uh, had uh, brought the disease uh, to the U.S. and he frequented bathhouses in in Haiti and Miami and New York, San Francisco and Toronto and San, L.A. And he basically went from bathhouse to bathhouse and deposited it uh, in various places. He may have helped amplify the disease, but the interesting truth is that it was already here. For a variety of reasons, we know that the, vari- the, the virus uh, originated probably in Cameroon or the Democratic Republic of the Congo and probably in the early 20th centuries, around 1920 or so, probably started with what we call the cut hunter theory. They that uh, they they eat a lot of bush meat in that part of Western Africa, which uh, chimpanzees are. Chimpanzees are known to carry an SIV chimp variety. Simeon. Yeah, simian SIV. And it's extremely similar to the original strain of HIV. So it was probably somebody who was either hunting or killing or trapping chimpanzees and maybe got bitten or scratched or cut himself while preparing the meat. And he somehow got infected with SIV and it became HIV. And then he deposited it most likely in what is now the capital of the Democratic Republic of Congo, Kinshasa. It was back then it was Leopoldville and it was the Belgian Congo. And it kind of slowly spread there only to be amplified after the Congo granted was granted its freedom from, from Belgium in 1960. And then, of course, you had chaos and the Belgians uh, who were much of the professionals of the of the country left and went to back to Belgium or wherever, 
and they needed French-speaking professionals for the Congo, uh, doctors, nurses, and all kinds of you know teachers, and they imported these from Haiti, where you had a uh, a black population that spoke French, just like they do in the Congo. And uh, it, many people believe that the disease amplified during this chaotic period in the Congo Wars, and people started moving from the villages to the city and prostitution became more rampant and it probably amplified through and at the same time these people returned to Haiti and may have reintroduced it back to Haiti and at the time a popular thing to do if you were poor to make money is to sell blood and even more economical or successful was to sell plasma and the thing with selling plasma is they pooled it all back in the 60s and if you had four or five different guys or let's say 500 different guys donating plasma, and you mixed it all together and then sold it to the United States and Europe, you could have one contaminated uh, batch of plasma could probably infect a lot of people. Most people think that's how the disease actually initially got into the U.S. and Europe, and it just exploded during the sexual revolution of the late 70s and early 80s. And you were in one of the, maybe the original AIDS research We were labs. part of one of the 18 uh, AIDS treatment and evaluation units in, spread across the U.S. That was in the mid-80s. We had a, a grant to be uh, part of that. And so we were, I actually participated in the original AZT trials, which we knew to be a failure. And by that time, we were, we are talking about a worldwide pandemic. By 18, uh, 1985, late 80s, when I was a fellow, it was everywhere in the world and rapidly spreading for re reasons that are probably worthy of another talk. But, uh, yeah, we uh, we were right there on the front lines. And then, of course, I was practicing when the cocktail came out in 1994. What's the cocktail? That's a combination of three different antiviral drugs that the first time actually appeared to work. Before that, remember, AZT was a failure. It didn't work by itself. And so was DDI and DDC and everything else we tried. But finally, a triple combination of what we call antiretroviral drugs, including a thing called protease inhibitors, which we don't much use anymore, but initially were very effective. For the first time, we were able to have people who lived longer than two or three years after diagnosis. And in fact, many of my patients diagnosed in 94 or 5 are still my patients today, alive and doing well. So let's go back to some other potential pandemics, or at least outbreaks. Uh, the Zika virus, the Ebola virus. What are the, there were some other Ebola ones virus in is an interesting one in that it share, shares many of the same demographics with HIV. It's probably started also in Cameroon or Congo. Um, we still don't know exactly where it came from, although they're increasingly trying to implicate bats uh, as a possible source for Ebola. But it's what we call a phylovirus, and they're not well adapted to causing pandemics because they kill so quickly that they burn out before they can actually become a pandemic. So to actually spread and grow the virus evolutionarily, it's beneficial to not kill your host. Right. If you look at it from the virus's point of view, as I, I like to tell people, you want to make sure you infect as many people as possible so you can re replicate yourself. If you're killing somebody in five or 10 days, you don't have much opportunity to affect other people. And so you're going to be dead. You're, you, you, the virus, will be gone in a few days, weeks, or months. Uh, that's the problem with 
all of the filoviruses, not just Ebola, but Marburg and other similar, uh, they're what we call hemorrhagic fever viruses, and they kill you quickly and very gruesomely sometimes by uh, you bleed from mucous membranes and actually you know, can sometimes exsanguinate to death. But they're interesting, and there have been multiple epidemics uh, since the 1960s of, of the various filoviruses, but nothing that would resemble a pandemic yet. It, a, HIV was probably a lethal killer within uh, a short period of time when, by the time that it reached its maximum zenith in the 1980s, uh, where at Charity Hospital, our average survival time between diagnosis of pneumocystis pneumonia and death was eight months, as I recall, because I kept the data back then. It's actually much different than that now. And typically, most uh, most scientists and virologists feel like you, you contract the virus and you don't really get AIDS until 10 years later. It takes about 10 years to, to really take over your body and kill off your CD4 immune system. And that's probably where it is now. You That allows it to replicate for a long time and to infect more people. So from the virus's point of view, if it keeps you alive a long time, it, it can uh, can infect more people. Parasites actually have mastered this so completely that they can stay alive in your body for your entire lifetime, and you never know they're there. Tapeworms, famously, they um, they they use so ve- very little of your resources, you don't even know they're there unless you happen to see them. So. Um, it's part of what we call the evolutionary arms race, uh, the host defense and the invader, and they're constantly uh, in a race with each other to see who can uh, come up with a better offense or defense. And you have a particular interest, I know, in tropical diseases um, that include yeah, parasites. I had a naive uh, thought that I would be a tropical disease doctor, which never really materialized. But I, I, I got a great interest in it. And, of course, I did research on malaria, on, on monkey malaria. And uh, we, believe it or not, we see some cases out here in the panhandle of oil field workers from Nigeria or somewhere or Southeast Asia that come back with malaria every now and then. Well, and with our high refugee population here, oh, uh, you yeah. see lots of tropical we, we diseases. We see a, a lot of Burmese refugees who were brought in by the Catholic Family Services. Uh, and, uh, of course, they're from Southeast Asia, and they carry a, a different variety of uh, of uh, diseases. Although, increasingly, with our world travel and, uh, you know, mingling of populations, uh, you can see anything anywhere. Well, that kind of brings us to the current coronavirus pandemic. Uh, I think if people didn't realize it was a global economy and society before, this has shown just really how truly connected, interconnected we are as 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 humans. I think that's exactly right. I wonder if um, ID historian a hundred years from now might look at this coronavirus. A pandemic as well the first one was in 2002 and they might just lump the two together because they're really similar but I, I will go back to the 2002 which technically was a pandemic as well and that was, it was the h1n1 no this was, was a, a coronavirus Corona, okay. you know what, what, what they're currently calling covid19 they just called that coronavirus okay coronaviruses have been identified since the 60s and uh not particularly paid much attention too, because they they caused a real innocuous winter cold, common cold, we called it. And so uh, 
uh, there wasn't a lot of research uh, going on. They We knew it occurred. Uh, uh, eventually, they were able to test for it, but there wasn't any research money in investigating the common cold, winter cold, coronavirus. And we knew it was there, and uh, we didn't really have a serious epidemic or pandemic of it until 2002, which was a unique set of circumstances where um, they called this a severe acute respiratory syndrome or SARS. SARS. And it was... Um, it, it occurred in southern China, especially around Hong Kong, but it was originally linked to what we call uh, wet markets, which uh, basically sold living and uh, recently dead animals to southern Chinese people who like to eat it, you know, fresh or raw or whatever. And it was eventually linked to a, a type of um, mammal called a palm civet and uh, or the civet cat. It's not a cat. It's actually a mongoose. But there was a, a wild eating, I think is what they called it. It was a fad at the time in southern China, and everybody wanted to eat all these things, uh, either dead or freshly killed. And they linked the virus specifically to palm civets. Now, it turns out we think now that the palm civets likely got it in these wet markets from bats. They think horseshoe bats because they, they would stack a lot of these cages one on top of the other. And as the animals would defecate, it would fall down in the bars. And probably there was a basket full or a cage full of palm civets that got contaminated and initiated the first few cases. And it, the, the Zars epidemic was interesting, and they quickly identified it as a coronavirus and later on found the association with bats and palm civets. But it raged for a while, and it actually was a fairly lethal epidemic, but it had a unique feature in that uh, several of the people who got it were what we call super spreaders or super transmitters. And one was a businessman who flew to Hong Kong, and he infected practically the entire floor of a hotel he was staying on. And... They're still not exactly sure of what, but he was clearly highly contagious. And then they had some other super spreaders that killed a lot of people, including a grandmother who returned to Toronto and caused a mini spread there. And they managed to get that one contained, and it didn't really break out into an entire world pandemic, but there was every risk of that. After that died down, of course, they did more research on coronaviruses, and they um, associated, as I said, with probably with bats. They tried various treatments, including antiretrovirals and all the things they're talking about doing now. They actually tried back back in 2002 and three, and um, nothing really worked. But fortunately, the pandemic kind of burned out over a year or so and hadn't really been a big problem here since. Now, we're looking currently at this current coronavirus epidemic. Looks like it started somewhere around November. We'll find out years from now uh, when they go back and research all this. Maybe it started earlier. Who knows? Uh, but we'll figure out when uh, it started. It looked like the first cases um, in that part of China may have started in the late November of 2019. And then clearly it uh, it uh, rapidly spread um, to now the whole world. So some viruses are DNA viruses. Can you give some examples? of Most famously, um, the herpes family, which includes not just herpes simplex 1 and 2, which cause fever blisters, and herpes simplex type 2, which causes a venereal disease, which just calls, causes blisters on the genital areas. But also uh, Epstein-Barr virus, famously the cause of infectious mononucleosis, 
um, cytomegalovirus uh, or CMV, uh, varicella zoster, which causes chicken pox, and then uh, by association later on, uh, shingles. All of these viruses are unique in that they are made with DNA, and they are also uniquely able to survive in the human body and replicate themselves for an entire lifetime. So if you get herpes simplex type 1 when you're 5 years old in the playground, you'll still have it when you die at 95. It'll still be there replicating, you know, it dies with you. RNA viruses are by far more common, and uh, coronavirus is, in fact, an RNA virus. So is influenza. Uh, and RNA and DNA vir- is deoxyribonucleic acid, and RNA is ribonucleic acid. DNA is in our in our genes. That's what makes up our, you know, the, the backbone of our chromosomes and how we pass on traits. <laughs> Sorry, so. I should have explained that. But it's, um, yes, DNA is the basic form of life, and but how do how do RNA viruses work? They um they use uh, what we call RNA polymerase, and they get inside the body. All viruses need to be uh, in a cell to replicate themselves. Since they don't have a cell themselves, they just usually have a, a protein capsule, and so they get into a human cell, like wherever in the body, in the case of coronavirus, is in the upper respiratory airway, and they invade those cells and they hijack uh, the cellular machinery along with their RNA polymerase to sit there and replicate themselves and make new little viruses. So our body has RNA. It creates its own RNA for our cells, and they're just hijacking the machinery that already exists. Right. Remember Crick's law, you know, DNA makes RNA makes protein. And um, until the retrovirus came around, we didn't think that could ever go in reverse. But it does, uh, which is another story. <laughs> okay. But the, uh, the thing with RNA is that RNA polymerase doesn't have a proofreading function like uh, DNA does. So the mutation rates on, on RNA viruses are wildly higher. So viruses can mutate in front of your eyes. They Every time they, they there's a, a small mistake in, in coding, it gets amplified. And so RNA viruses are highly prone to forming novel or new viruses. And Influenza is an RNA virus. Influenza is an RNA virus. So that's why people say, oh, well, I got the flu shot and it didn't work. They're chasing They're last year's it. virus, right? Right. You, I get my influenza shot every year. As do I. As everyone should. Uh, mostly to protect the herd. Because uh, the more of us that get immunized, the higher the likelihood that we'll blunt the 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 epidemic, which basically there's a pandemic of influenza every year. It's just sometimes some years are worse than others. Uh, the virus vaccine is only about eighty percent effective at best, which means even if you get the vaccine, you can still get the virus. But you do it anyway, and it usually makes it less severe if you do get it. But there are years when uh, the virus is mutated so differently that. It, the vaccine doesn't work at all. We had that situation about three years ago where the vaccine was um, was ineffectual and it, we had a pretty severe flu epidemic. I know you had it I did. several times. I didn't like so, it. Uh, so the vaccine uh, is not 100% effective. Does that mean you shouldn't take it? No, you should. Everybody should. 
besides your medical reading, obviously, and your training and all, uh, you, you read this stuff for pleasure. I know you're reading a book right now on the history of AIDS. Um, yeah, it's excellent, too. What's the name of it? It's called The Origin of AIDS. Um, I can't remember the author's name. Okay. Highly recommended. Very, very and, good. And you mentioned Plagues and People. Are there other books along these Plagues lines? Plagues and Peoples is a classic. It's written by a historian named William McNeil, who was a author of a lot of the famous uh, history textbooks uh, that when I was uh, in grade school and college uh, back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. So it's written like a historian. It's fairly dense, but it covers much of this territory, and it's quite excellent. There's um, Guns, Germs, and Steel, a famous bestseller by Jared Diamond, which he covers some, some of this territory as well. And then you also read heavily in the history. Well, you read you read more than anybody I know. But um, some of the those dense books you've read about the his, European history and Eastern yeah, I love uh, Runciman's uh, three volume uh, history of the Crusades is a is is a good one. You have to. You have to be a kind of a history geek to really like some of that stuff. But yes, I do. I love to read uh, medieval history. The book 1453 about the fall of Constantinople. That was great. An I, absolutely I that classic that everybody should read. Two books that I think help you understand this, and not just disease, but the whole Columbian exchanges. There was a book called 1491, which looked at the world prior to too. Columbus. And then 1493, which is, okay, what happened to the world after Columbus? And it's an eye-opener, both volumes. Uh, I think it should be standard reading for every American. <laughs> So is there anything else regarding pandemics that we haven't covered that you'd like to mention? I would like to say, as I watch this chaos unfold around us, that I think panic is contagious, too. And we have to be careful while we're trying to save lives and and, uh, protect our citizenry. We should remember that I don't care how much you mask yourself and sequester yourself. You're not going to escape exposure to viruses. There comes a time when you realize that you and your immune system are going to have to sink or swim. And we've been doing this for hundreds of thousands of years as humans. Uh, our, our immune systems are constantly adapting and highly evolved. And um, this epidemic and pandemic will be in the rearview mirror one of these days. Well, are there lessons to learn? Yes. But exactly which? Ask me again in 10 years. Well, until we know the data, we don't really know the answer. I know. I can't understand this constant ongoing analysis of the information when you have incomplete data. The, we don't even know what the denominator of this has. This virus may have infected half the population already. We don't know because we're not testing asymptomatic people yet. Now, that will come and we'll eventually be, a, be able to make a rough reckoning as to how contagious, how common, how lethal, all of those things. But we won't be able to do that for years. So I'm going to set you up for our next podcast interview down the road with this question. And you only get a sentence. I won't make you stick to one word to answer this. Are all diseases infectious? Excellent question for the next time. Well, thank you. Thank you for your words of wisdom, for your historic background knowledge, uh, just for putting a, a broader view of pandemics that we've dealt with for 
lots and lots of years as, as the human race. And thank you for listening to Annette on Education.